This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, August 12, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. Following the attack on the Capitol in January, it's worth understanding who was involved, what brought them to that willingness to invade the seat of federal power as it was engaged in the otherwise peaceful transfer of presidential authority. But it's also worth noting that the threat so many want to play up in the wake of that attack is still very small. Abigail Hall is a professor of economics at Bellarmine University and co-author of the new book, Manufacturing Militarism. We spoke last month. What do we know about the people who raided the Capitol on January 6th? Well, we know that obviously there are quite a few people who were involved. We're starting to see more and more of the arrest and the now people actually being uh, convicted and sentenced related to it. But one of the other things that we now know about the individuals participating is that a disproportionate number of them have some military connection. So either active duty military uh, or a military veteran. Okay, so let me explain that away. Uh, Donald Trump loves the troops and uh, the troops I don't know. Did they vote for him in large numbers? Uh, You know, I actually don't know what the breakdown would look like. Um, My guess would be just based on historical data that you probably have a large military contingent that is going to go Republican. Okay, so there you have it. That explains it 100 percent. I would push back on that and say that I I don't I don't think that it does. Um, And there are a few different things that we also see related, particularly to the military affiliated individuals who were taking part in 1-6 that makes this connection even a bit more disturbing. So you have this picture that comes out of a group of individuals, think about five or six people, and they're going up the Capitol steps. And if you imagine the stairs and think about people in a single file line and they're holding on to the back of the person in front of them. And this is a well-known military tactic that's called a file formation. Now, most of the time this is used in training, but like hypothetically you would see this in areas where you've got restricted terrain, low visibility, and you're unlikely to come under enemy fire. And so this gave people pause and people were concerned that then this would indicate that the people involved had military training or had been trained by those who did. Um, And as it turns out, I mentioned military-affiliated individuals are overrepresented. So about 14% of the initial arrest. So for perspective, about 7% of the U.S. population is active duty or has a military affiliation. But the other thing that is disturbing, in addition to having this overrepresentation of military personnel, is you also have at the 1-6 Capitol riots, a number of far-right extremist groups. And then within these groups, you have military affiliation. And it's the combination of these two things that I think is particularly setting off some red flags with a variety of different people, um, but also the thing that we were, my co-authors and I were particularly interested in studying. Yeah, so this feeds into and is in part a product to feed into a lot of your other work. Right. So this relates directly to um, my 2018 co-authored book, Tyranny Comes Home, with Chris Coyne of George Mason University. And in that book, we look to understand the process through which the tools of foreign intervention come back to be used domestically. And within that book, we mostly focus on how it is that various government agencies have deployed these various tools of social control. But in seeing this particular example, and there are certainly others as well, um, this is really an example, I think, of 
the integration of tools of war into organizations that are not government affiliated, but nevertheless have a potentially very serious uh, consequence as a result. Traditionally, the military takes that kind of threat pretty seriously. The military has historically had policies trying to prevent extremists from being within the ranks. So you have policies regarding tattooing, regarding behavior. Now, this is not to say that you don't see instances where people have gotten in who you would not want to be in the military. So you have a variety of instances, both contemporary as well as historically, of finding things like KKK members who are members of the armed forces who are then ousted as a result. But the argument that my co-authors and I make in this paper is that within a post-9-11 context, people who are affiliated with an extremist ideology, particularly this far-right ideology is where we're focused, that these individuals are more likely to be able to join the military than they were in a pre-9-11 context and are more likely to be able to remain in the military, even if they are found to have these ideologies. So if I'm understanding you correctly, a lot of this can be traced, at least, you know, the thread may may appear to be thin all the way back to uh, U.S. intervention in a bunch of Middle Eastern countries going back many decades. So that's that's the argument that that we make, is that there are certain changes, particularly within a post-9-11 context, that have essentially made it less costly, now not talking in monetary terms, um, but has made it less difficult for radical individuals to join the military. Um, And then also, too, we make a, a corollary argument to that, which is that by having these changes, which have allowed more individuals with these types of ideologies into the military, it provides a really fertile recruitment ground for these types of organizations who are well known, or it's it is well known, that individuals with military training are given a a priority status, if you will, within these extremist groups. Yeah. And you would wonder to what extent these people are meeting each other. True. And there's difficulty in studying these groups for, for obvious reasons. So you are looking at activity that is often illegal or people who are trying to conceal the fact that they, that they are in these groups, not all of them, but a lot. Um, And so we have to take the the data that is available, but we do see evidence that it is going in both directions. So you have individuals who hold and possess this ideology already going into the military, but then you also have groups who are pulling people out of the military. Um, Now, when people become radicalized or people come to adopt these ideologies, um, that's not necessarily clear. Um, We have anecdotal evidence, for instance, of when people started to adopt these types of these types of ideologies, but it's not, um, at least we don't have anything comprehensive or, or predictable, let's say. All right. So what's the takeaway then? So the big takeaway um, that we would argue from looking at this data, and there are a few different things. So we have some data looking at things like the number of extremists who are profiled in a pre-9-11, post-9-11 context. We have a number of incidents involving far-right extremists within the pre-9-11, post-9-11 context. And then we also have a unique measurement for fatality potential. So looking at had attacks been successful in their completion, what would have likely been the impact on human life? And again, looking at that pre-9-11, post-9-11. And so in all of these cases, we see more extremists profiled or more extremists who are um, 
analyze within this context. We also see more activity and we see a greater harm potential. So within this 20-year context now that we have been fighting this war on terror, the concern, um, especially initially, was related to Islamic terrorists. Um, But we're pointing out that there are different margins upon which terrorism can occur. And so through the policies that the U.S. government adopted in response to 9-11, they may very well have sown the seeds to generate the type of terrorist activity that now people are really concerned about. On and immediately after September 11th, 2001, uh, which we're rapidly approaching the 20th anniversary of, the focus was wiping out this terrorist threat. And one of the mistakes that the federal government made in responding to that threat was to, and this is, I, I lay this at the feet of George W. Bush, was to make that threat larger than it actually was, at least in the public consciousness. And are we at risk of doing that here? I think we absolutely are. So one of the things that I've researched, but the person who I automatically think of in terms of talking about threat inflation is John Mueller. And John Mueller has talked a lot about this whole idea of threat inflation, that people perceive the risks associated with terrorism as being much larger than they are. And as you mentioned, the focus has been on Islamic terrorism terrorism historically. Now, you see people shifting this focus to, oh, it's domestic extremism, it's far-right extremism. And one of the things that I want to point out is that even though we do find that there is this potential for a growing threat within this context of far-right extremism, the risk posed by this is still remarkably small. And so this would be, I think, yet another, another potential for government to say, hey, there is this threat it is larger than what statistically it actually is, and therefore we need to undertake all of these kinds of policies. Or my agency needs a lot of money to deal with this. Right. And we've seen exactly how this happens, and my my other work illustrates this exact point. So we saw this with, oh, there are Islamic extremists that we need to take care of. Now there are, you know, homegrown extremists, and it was kind of an amorphous, uh, faceless enemy. And now, yet again, I think that this is what we have potential to see here again is that, oh, look, there is this growth in extremism. And I think one of the things that we show is, well, yes, it does appear that we might be seeing that growth. But all things considered, I am by no means advocating and would not suggest that this would necessitate a really large policy response, because I think we've seen what happens when we do that. And for policymakers who want to poo-poo that notion, uh, they should understand that a lot of our threat inflation uh, that we engaged in after 9-11 really helped uh, terrorist groups, uh, one, in, in one way, view themselves as victims of uh, you know, the U.S. hegemony, and two, recruit because, wow, these guys are really doing something big. Yeah, there are, there's lots of different literatures looking at terrorism and how U.S. policy has impacted terrorism. I've written in that area. Other people certainly have as well. And I think you really hit on the high points that it serves, A, as as a recruitment tool um, because people look at this and say, oh, I can be a part of something larger than myself. But then also, too, I think you're absolutely right that it does allow for and plays into uh, the victimization component as well. Um, And related to that, one of the things that we saw, for instance, in the war on terror was something like drone warfare 
is that you do have legitimate civilian casualties. And so I'm not naive enough to think that another large policy response might not also have similar civilian casualties. They might not be deaths, but you might create legitimate victims in that sense, in that kind of scenario as well. Abigail Hall is co-author of the new book, Manufacturing Militarism. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast pretty much anywhere and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.